came across a quote this week. I'm just going to read it out to you. It says this. I wish I could tell you that when you come to Jesus, all your problems will be over. I wish I could tell you that when you give your life to God, it will all be clear sailing. I wish I could tell you that following Jesus would mean an easy life and an easy road. But I cannot tell you that in all honesty. Life is tough for everyone, including for Christians. But as followers of Jesus, you will never face the storms of life alone. God is always watching, God is always available, and God is always caring. What amazing news this morning. God is always available. Well, I want to ask us a question this morning. Are we, as we keep looking at reconnecting with God and with each other, are we fully available for Jesus? Just hold that in your mind. I'm going to read um, this morning from Mark chapter 6. It's just a short passage, verses 45 through to 52. Um, I'm not going to be reading it from the NIV, which is the Bibles we have in church. I'm going to use um, a translation of the Bible called the New Testament for Everyone, um, which is N.C. Wright's translation that he uses for his commentary series, really because it picks up some of the language, I think, brilliantly. But it's on the screen, so hopefully you can follow it with me. So Mark 6, 45 to 52. It's entitled, Jesus Walks on Water. At once, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and set sail across towards Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. He took his leave of them and went off up the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the shore. He saw they were having to work hard at Rome because the wind was against them. And he came to them about the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. He intended to go past them. But they saw him walking on the sea and thought it was an aberration. They yelled out. All of them saw him and they were scared stiff. At once he spoke to them. Cheer up, he said. It's me. Don't be afraid. He came up to them and got into the boat and the wind stopped. They were overwhelmed and astonished. They hadn't understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Let's just pray again, shall we? Lord Jesus, we just pray now as we unpack this amazing event of what you did, that you would just encourage us to have our hearts and our lives that are fully available for you this morning. We thank you that you are always available for us, and we just pray that, that you would encourage us to just have that openness to the work of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I changed my day off this week um, because Claire was working on Friday and we normally take a day off together on a Friday. So we had a day off together on a Thursday instead. And we said, well, what should we do? We've got a nice day ahead of us. So I needed some new boots. My boots had literally fallen apart. So I thought, let's go to Chester. We'll do a bit of shopping. Um, But also I wanted, now I realise this is very niche and you're going to think I'm really weird for doing this. I also wanted to go to an organ recital at the cathedral. Yes, there's a few people laughing at that. Here's me, just sat there, waiting as the crowds entered to listen to Chester Cathedral organ. Claire also thought I was very weird, and she went to TK Maxx while I went to this (laughs) organ recital. But in this organ recital, the first piece of music wasn't something I'd ever heard before. It was a piece by the modernist French composer Messiaen. Now, Messiaen wrote this piece, and I've got to find my notes here. It's called in French, now excuse my French accent, Aberition d'Eglise Eternelle, which in English doesn't sound anything like as impressive. It means the appearance of the eternal church. 
But this bloke came forward and he said, I'm going to have to explain this piece of music to you because you need to understand what's going on. And he said, this music will start with these dark rumblings in the organ and it will be all discordant and it will be weird and it will be wonderful and it will keep going for about five or six minutes and then suddenly this enormous chord will appear, this major chord. And this apparently, in Messiaen's head, was as the eternal church enters into the presence of God. And when this chord came, boy, did you feel it. The whole floor was rumbling. It's probably one of the loudest things I think I've ever heard. But you know what? If I was in that room and wasn't paying attention to what was going on, it would have just sounded like a load of noise. It would have just sounded like a load of noise. I had to be really present to listen and to understand and to appreciate. I did play some Mike in the car the other day, and I think he was like, what on earth is this music you're making me listen to? It really is. But if you want a recording of it, let me know, and I'll send it to you. You can appreciate it as well. But it's a bit of an in phrase, isn't it? Being fully available, being present, being in the moment. Are we in the moment? Are we present when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? Are we really there? Are we committed to giving time to him? Well, Mark's Gospel, of, of all the Gospels, it's the fastest paced, it's the shortest. And just in the few chapters leading up to chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing, he's raised the dead, he's calmed a storm, he's cast out demons, and he's literally just fed the 5,000 people. And ministering in front of crowds of thousands of people is very tiring. Those of us who in the room are preachers or teachers or, or do upfront roles will know that being in front of people is hard work. It's tiring. It's emotionally tiring. As a preacher, it's spiritually tiring. It's also physically tiring. And Jesus is in need of rest. Now, Jesus, time and again, shows us how, as human beings, to live well. He shows us God's priorities and God's heart for us. And for us to flourish as a human being, we need to rest. It's built into us. It's what we need. We need rest. We need also to spend time alone with God. Now, naturally, I'm quite extroverted as a person. I know we're all different. Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts, some are omniverts. Um, an extrovert is somebody who gets energy from being with other people. An introvert is somebody who normally gets energy from being alone. Now, I was in church on Friday. I'm not normally here on a Friday. And there were a couple of craft groups in. Um, and I go and seek out conversation with people because that's what sort of feeds me, what sort of keeps me going as a person. Now, we are all different. We're all different. I acknowledge that. But for me, that poses a challenge. I'm not brilliant at doing the alone stuff. I'm not brilliant at doing what Jesus did, at taking myself off and actually just being alone with him and in peace and in quiet. Now, when we think about listening and refreshing with the Lord, it is part of God's plan for us. What happens at the beginning of Genesis? Well, God creates the world, and on day seven, what does he do? He rests. There is Sabbath. There is space. What is the first day of humanity in Genesis? It's not work, but it's rest. It's rest and being with God. And work only comes out of rest and refreshment. And this is what Jesus is doing here. It says, he took his leave of them and went off up the mountain to pray. Now, we don't have many mountains in Lynn. But we are blessed to live in part of the world where you can get out into the quietness and the peace quite easily. So for me, you know, the, the quiet and the peaceful places are walking the dog along the canal, round the woods, in the park. For you, it might be you've got a seat in the garden that as the weather improves, you go and you sit there and you just think, this is the place where I can be still and be refreshed by God's presence. It might be a comfy chair in the lounge. It might be going and sitting in the conservatory, whatever it is. 
But it's just that place where we say, actually, I'm here, Lord. I'm resting, and I'm, I'm available to pray. I'm available to hear what you have to say to me. But, you know, we often fill our minds with clutter, don't we? I don't know if any of you listened to Chris's interview about has the smartphone become an idol. Um, but we, we were out last weekend. It was my birthday. And we were sat in this restaurant. And um, the table that was, was just behind us, there were six people sat there, four adults and two children. And they were chatting away, eating their food. And, you know, as they stopped eating, one by one, this happened. They got the phones out of their pockets and they start scrolling, endlessly scrolling, until... By the time they'd all finished their food, the, ta- the table had literally gone silent. They were no longer speaking to one another. There was no conversation. I don't know what they were doing on their phones, but it was obviously more interesting, they thought, than what had been going on before. Now, we can talk about that. We can talk about, are we missing out by being present with each other, by just this scrolling of information? But actually, what is that doing to our relationship with God? You know, when we're in a world where we're just bombarded with the stuff of the world, whether it's the football scores, whether it's whatever share price is going up and down, whether you're looking on Facebook, whatever it is. You know, it can disrupt that rest and that refreshment from the Lord. Are we fully present with God? Are we actually getting those places, just like Jesus models to us, of stillness and refuge? Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Just that encouragement, seek out the Lord. Be fully available to him. Me and God. Just me and God. Now, I find that really tough sometimes. I'm not the person who naturally goes for the quiet place. Some of us may be. But do we actually factor that in, just as Jesus did? Because, you see, when we don't, we miss out on what God has to say to us. You know, when we're not listening to him, then maybe that God has a calling for us in life. And we're just not listening. We're scrolling with information and we're not listening. It may be that God wants to encourage us and we miss the encouragement because our, our minds are full of other things. It may be that God wants to give us a word to share with somebody else to encourage them and that person misses out. So are we fully available? You know, if Jesus needed to do it, how much more do we need to do it? So while Jesus is finding refreshment, he sent the disciples on the boat onto the lake And there are experienced fishermen, remember, some of the disciples. They know how to deal with a boat. They know what the weather on the lake can be like. But just try to picture this scene for a moment that's in the passage. It's evening now, and Jesus has come onto the shore of the lake. He's spent the time with his heavenly Father. The boat is out in the middle of the lake, some some way out. We get the impression from Mark it's near enough for him to see that they're straining at the oars. But what doesn't become immediately um, uh, sort of obvious in this passage is the amount of time that Jesus spends on the shore. Just look at what it says. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the shore. He saw they were having to work hard at Rome because the wind was against them. And he came to them about the fourth watch of the night. We've got to get ourselves into the Middle Eastern mindset of the first century to understand the timescales there. But the four watches of the night start at 6 p.m. and go through to 6 a.m. the following day, three-hour slots each. And they were the watches that soldiers would do um, on the walls of garrisons or on city walls. And they would swap over every three hours. So Jesus arrives at the seashore at 6 p.m. as the sun goes down. He doesn't do anything until 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. He's just there on the seashore. What on earth is he doing? 
What is Jesus? What is the time like in Mark's Gospel all about? Well, Jesus is in no hurry. He's in no hurry to do anything at this point. Now, if I was having a review with somebody and was trying to account for what time I was spending and what I was doing, you know, how I justified the time I was using, and I just had in my diary 10 hours stood at the side of Lim Dam looking out at the water, I might get some questions, you know, is that really the best use of your time, Jonathan? You know, is is that really the, the right thing to be doing? We see for Jesus, ministry is unhurried. Ministry is not to be dictated to by human diaries. And so what we find him doing is he's waiting and then he watches and he responds. He's present even though they don't know it. The disciples aren't aware that he is there. You know, what a reminder. Jesus is always with us. Jesus is always watching, even when we don't see it. Jesus always knows what we're going through, whether it's we're working, whether it's we're resting, whether it's through, if you like, the storms of life or the stillness of life. He is present. And, you know, that is a real encouragement, isn't it? If this week you know that you're facing a difficult meeting at work or a difficult um, consultation with the doctor, Jesus is there. He will be there with you. He is there watching. And he is there waiting with you. But at some point, many hours later, having observed their hard work, he walks out into the lake. Jesus came to them, it says. Now, Galilee is a big lake. If you've been to Loch Lomond in Scotland, it's three times bigger than that. It's quite a big lake. It's not the open sea, but it's big. And onto this water, Jesus walks out. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then we get a paradox in the text. I don't know if you noticed this. It says he came to them, and then he intended to go past them. What does that mean? He's walking towards them, but then he intends to go past them. It's one of those unusual moments in the gospel where we get two statements that don't seem initially to make a lot of sense together. You know, just imagine, I'm going around to see somebody, and I go to the house, and then I walk past and keep going. I actually did that this week. I went to see somebody and then missed the house, and they shouted out their front door, provided me with a great illustration for this morning. But it's just a bit of nonsense, isn't it? You go to see somebody, you go in to see them. You don't walk past the house and just keep going and say, oh, I came, but then I carried on going. What is Jesus up to? What is he doing? He intends to go past them, but his intention is not to go go straight to them. Well, last week I was at the NWBA Ministers' Conference, and one of the the speakers actually referenced this passage. Um, Don't worry, you're not getting their, their talk this morning, but it was this that really struck out to me. And they said, you know, Jesus is always walking towards us in life. Always. He's always seeking relationship with us. He's always wanting to be there in our storms, in our fears, whatever it is. But unless we cry out to him, unless we acknowledge him, he will keep on walking. And we will miss out on what he has for us. Just hear that again. He will keep on walking. And we will miss out what he has for us. Jesus will keep walking. He doesn't barge his way into human experience. God never has done, and God never will do. God will encourage us, and sometimes there will be things that happen that say, oh, hold on a minute, was that God? You know, Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 has this blazing vision of the Son of God, but he still has to accept that that was Jesus. He could have still turned around and said, well, that was a TIA, it was a seizure, it was something else, but he has to make that conscious decision to say, no, this is Jesus. And right from Genesis, one thing amongst many that is consistent 
is that God takes our free will very, very seriously. Adam and Eve in the garden, what happens there? There is perfection, but there is the tree there that allows them to say no to God. What do they do? They say no to God. They go their own way. Moving forward, the people of Israel, they are given the law. The law of Moses is given to them. It shows them how to live perfectly with God in their midst. What do they do? They ignore it. They start going their own way. They ignore God pursuing them. But God keeps on going. He keeps pursuing after his people. He sends the prophets. The prophets come. We were looking at Micah last week, weren't we? And that encouragement, get back to justice. Get back to mercy. Get back to the law. What do they do? They keep ignoring The people of God keep ignoring that he is pursuing them. So God sends his final word. He sends Jesus to the world. What happens? Well, people send him to the cross. He dies for the sins of the world on trumped-up charges. But Jesus keeps pursuing us. He keeps coming after us. You know, we can choose to be available for God, or we can choose to be totally unavailable. And if we choose to be like, you know, sometimes you ring somebody and they never pick up the phone. And you just think, I'm just ringing and ringing. Sometimes we can be like that with Jesus. We're, we're, just, we're just ringing out. We're not available. But we have to make that decision to be fully available. Verse 48. The Son of God defies the law of physics by walking on the water. You know, walking on water is not humanly possible. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it isn't. Um, just in case you want a bit of proof, um, some Italian researchers did some research back in 2012 and they were seeing if it was at all possible to walk on the water. And they worked out that if you were five foot tall, of average weight, you could walk on the water for 15 seconds if you could hit the water at 67 miles an hour exactly, um, which nobody can do. And, but they also found out that if you hit the water at 67 miles an hour, it would break your legs. So therefore, it's not possible. So what Jesus is doing is a miracle. In the purposes of Mark's gospel, it's one of the many miracles that Jesus does to prove that he is Messiah, to prove that he is who he says he is. But the disciples haven't got it. They haven't got it, it says at the end. It says their hearts were hardened from the the, the miracle of the loaves and the fish. And here, their response is just rooted in natural human experience. See, as human beings, we often falter in the face of a miracle. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know what to do with it. But underlying this physical miracle, and absolutely this is a miracle, is a greater spiritual reality. And the reality is this. Jesus is not removed from our problems. Jesus is always walking towards us. The love of God is such that his son pursues us, keeps walking towards us, keeps longing for relationship. And as we look and continue to look at this reconnecting with God theme, Let's just ask that question again. Are we available to the Son of God who pursues us? Whether it's for the first time, whether it's for conversion, whether it's for a fresh calling on our lives, whether it's for the anointing of the Spirit, whether it's for being available to be healed in some way, and we've just shut ourselves off. Whatever way it is, are we available? See, Jesus won't barge in. He will keep walking if we don't call out to him. But he's always available. Are we available to him. Back to the disciples for a moment. They see Jesus in verse 49. But why don't they recognize him? Well, I've walked um, by many lakes over the years, but I've never ever seen anyone walking on the water. And I'm presuming, unless God does some kind of miracle, that I never will, because it's impossible. What do you do when you see the impossible? You, you freak out, don't you? You don't know what to make of it. 
And so they react according to human fear. It says they think he's an aberration or a ghost, something unknown, something scary. First century mindset, it was full of all kinds of theories about the unknown. And they just fall into type. And their response is totally inappropriate to actually who Jesus is. They yell out, scared stiff. But here's the thing. Jesus can respond to even the most incoherent human responses to him. Even if we just yell out to him, out of the fear, right at the bottom of our hearts, Jesus can respond to it. And then it says, and I love this translation, it just proves to me that Jesus was in fact a northerner. Cheer up, it's me. Don't be afraid. I love that. Cheer up, it's me. Don't be afraid. What a human response that Jesus offers. It's not some long theological comment. It's just, here I am. You need not fear. Verse 51. He came to them, gets in the boat, and the wind stopped. They are overwhelmed and astonished. Jesus simply joins them in their everyday life tasks, and things suddenly change. They've misread Jesus, but even in their confusion, even in the way they speak to him, he still speaks peace over them. Fear and confusion, they they are part of every human being's um, sort of experience, aren't they? We all fear. Some of our fear we may think is very rational. You know, if you're at the top of a roller coaster about to go down a deep drop and you're scared, it's probably right to feel scared because you're going to experience a deep drop. Some of us have irrational fears. Most of us do. And we know they're irrational, but we can't help being afraid anyway. Sometimes we just have fear of the unknown. You know, fear of what may be. I wonder whether in these moments... There's a whole sort of gathering of human fear that happens in the experience of the disciples. But just remember back to Christmas for a moment. If you were here at the carol service, we were looking at how Christmas is full of angels saying, do not be afraid. And, you know, that is a natural response to fear, isn't it, when an angel walks into the room. But when they say, don't be afraid, it's not just a don't be afraid for the here and now. But it's a don't be afraid in the biggest possible picture. The Son of God in this instance, not an angel, but the Son of God himself, has stepped into life with the disciples. He has walked towards them. They have screamed out. They didn't quite know what was going on. But he gets into the boat, and Jesus is with them. There's an old song, isn't there? I won't sing it to you. With Jesus in the boat, you can smile at the storm. It's not based on this passage. It's based on Mark chapter 4. But I think it's one of those old songs that totally misses the point. We don't smile at the storm. But we know that in the storm, Jesus is now with us. Jesus has now got into the boat. He's with us. And he will never be going anywhere. We have him as our journey and companion. The problems don't necessarily vanish. But the one who has conquered all fear, sin, guilt, our past, our present, our future, the powers of darkness, even to death itself, is now journeying with them in the boat. Jesus is always with them. Why should they be afraid? I don't know if you're fearful this morning. I don't know if you're fearful of things that are yet to come or whether you're fearful of things that you have done that are sort of following, uh, sort of coming up behind you or whatever it might be. But Jesus comes and speaks to us. Cheer up. There is no need to be afraid. Perhaps you just need to hear that line again. Cheer up. It's me. Don't be afraid. The disciples, they had to listen to those words because it says they were overwhelmed and astonished. It would take time for them. It would take time for them to really understand. And as Mark's gospel unfolds, it's many chapters before it all starts to sink in as just who Jesus is. 
But bit by bit, they start to make themselves available to him. And bit by bit, they find out that he is totally trustworthy. So I don't know about you this morning. I don't know whether any of these things are where you need to be more available to Jesus than perhaps we are at the moment. Listening. Are we available and present to listen to what God would say to us? Responding. Are we available to the promptings that Jesus may give us? Or perhaps, and importantly, as we come and gather around the table in a few moments, are we available to be hope-filled, to have our fears spoken to, and to respond again to the Son of God who died for us and rose again? Let me pray for us, and then Sam will come up. We'll ask the music team actually to come up. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs of response, and then Sam will lead us through a time of communion. Let's pray. Those words again of Jesus. Cheer up, he said, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, I want to pray for each of us that we would be fully available for you this morning. Fully available to your words of hope, to your words of challenge. Fully available to all that you would say and do in our hearts. And Lord, where we're not present, where we're not fully present with you, I pray that you would just guide us in these moments to respond to your truth, to respond to your words, and to invite you, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, into our lives, so that we may receive from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.